I mean, it takes women a long time. And sometimes a young woman will come in and say, you know, it just takes me forever. I'm like, how long does it take you? She's like, oh, it takes me 15 minutes. I'm like, okay, you're, you're like, you're like a rock star. Average. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're normal and actually above average. You're above average. And I think men who most often are educated through porn, Hmm. you know, are really disappointed. And they're like, wow, that, that takes, that's a lot of work. (laughs) And women, women count themselves dysfunctional. Right. If they are not uh, similar to the male pattern, right? Yes, preach it. You know, women got to climb the mountain and men, they take a gondola. You know, they're just <laughs> at the top. <laughs> okay, let's do this. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. Are you ready? I'm ready. Love or work. Is anyone listening? No, don't put that on the air. These two people are really, really funny. This one made me cry. World Series champion. Around the entire world. NBA All-Star. We hope you love this interview as much as we did. Love or work. Welcome to the Love Work Podcast. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. Wow, we got a special, special podcast today. Yes, it's maybe my favorite one so far. We're going to talk about sex. So Lori Watson is a sex therapist who's been doing this for 30 plus years. She has a podcast that I listen to on the regular called Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. And I just really enjoy her. I feel like I've learned so much from her podcast. I did find this podcast and bring it to you. Do you remember that? Yes. And <laughs> I, we wanted to learn from her some more. And She's awesome. This has definitely been something that people have been asking us about. Uh, I'm so if like, we are ever going to talk about it, if nah, we're ever what, going to. And I was like, I don't feel qualified. Well, so, what's funny is I apparently always bring it up on the podcast. You do. But you're the one that always wants to talk about it actually behind the scenes. I do. And you make it look like I'm like this sicko or something. No, I just I do love to talk about sex in person with people one-to-one. So if you ever like see me and you want to hit me up, but on the podcast, when we're like interviewing couples, I don't always necessarily want to talk about it. You always turn all red. And in this podcast, I started turning a little red. You were getting all, you were, you you had to take your jacket off. Sweating. (laughs) She like started using all these taboo words. Vulva, vagina. Okay. Eroticism. Listen, Yeah, when she started with the word... Orgasm. (laughs) What else? When she opened up with the word eroticism, I was like, I don't know what to do. (laughs) Oh, she's the best. She is okay with talking about all the things that you need to talk about. And she makes other people actually more comfortable to talk about it, which I think is a really healthy thing for her. There's no shame. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing off topic or nothing that's um, embarrassing. I love that she is just very open and. Right. And as you listen to this, there are a few ways that you can get connected to her organization, right? You can look up her podcast. Foreplay, radio, sex, therapy. Yep. And then she is also, she also wrote a book called Wanting Sex Again. Her and her co-host, Dr. Adam Matthews, um, they both do these couples intensives on the weekend. Um, so we will have a link to all of that. Yeah, on Instagram. Yes. 
So um, let's let's get right to it. I know you guys. I mean, you're on the edge of your seat. You're waiting. You want this conversation. The truth is, like everyone wants to talk about it, but there's not a lot of environments where people do talk about it. We're going to talk about it today. So I want you to listen for three things that she's going to share about. Number one, orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to say them all. Number two, vibrators. Number three, the four 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 rule. You know, like our moms listen to this, which is I so know. funny. I'm sorry, Mama, Sandy, Judy. Judy. And Sandy. If this makes you feel awkward, please do not listen to this episode. Here we go. Let's listen from Lori right now. I am working to help people toward optimal sex, hmm. which is eroticism and connection. Um, you know, there's been research studies done that basically say, you know, for longtime lovers who report um, still active sex lives and sex lives that they are proud of and that they feel is contributing to their lives, that it's both aspects that they feel deeply attuned to their lover and that um, they've been open and that they feel secure and safe in the relationship, but also that they have been able to bravely, courageously continue with erotic experimentation and be able to communicate what they want and what their sexual needs are so that it's also very explicit. It's a combination of both those things. Hmm. And I know a lot of people talk about, you know, in terms of healthy, like amounts of sex and everybody kind of wants to quantify. Is that even true? I mean, is there really like a quantification number that will say you have a healthy sex life? Cause I just, I, don't I, know. I would say that, um, if couples were having sex twice a week, they would not come to my office. Really? So, so if they were having sex, and that really is about an hour's worth of time during the week, that's one longie on the weekend when they have time for slow building arousal, and one quickie, you know, and that's about a 45-minute <laughs> time and a 15-minute time, right? I, so one quickie, one longie. And I would vote that most couples are not going to show up in my office hmm. for for sex therapy. Huh. I mean, maybe it's too mechanical or something, so they might, but that amount, you know, maybe it's not optimal, but I think it tides people over. And then, you know, on vacation, they have sort of time to do something crazy and wild and um, that is better or more frequent. But on a work week, if y'all are getting it done twice a week, <laughs> yay you. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's that's good. It's a good goal. Yeah, it's a good I, goal. You know, but the reality is, people that are coming to your office, the reality is they're not. And right. there's a series of experiences that probably led to long times where there was a lack of health in that sexual relationship, a lack of that's trust, correct. a lack of I don't know what all goes into that. Um. So talk about that. So there's people come into you that aren't in that space. What led to that in your mind? So this is a scary stat, but 
A third of couples who have been married for two years experience what is considered a sexless or low sex marriage. And a sexless marriage is less than 10 times a year. So basically less than once a month. And a low sex marriage is less than every other week. A third of couples get there within two years. So this is before children, before aging, right? I mean, this is, these are young people who experience low sex and sexless marriages or committed partnerships. What would you see is, you know, you've talked to these people so much. What, what would you say is their big reasons, like the top reasons for this? Well, I think the title of your podcast is a clue. It's this split between love and work and love and work represents the split between autonomy and connection, Hmm. right? Our work is our purpose and our calling and what we feel excited about, or we hope that, you know, it gets there, you know, our career and our love is the person, you know, that our, our person that we're connected to and that we feel we want to be close with, have sex with, spend time with. And those represents, represent two needs in each person. Mm-hmm. We all have needs for independence and we all have needs for connection. But in marriage, those two needs pull apart. And one person seems to corner the market on one aspect of it and the other on the other aspect. So one person remains more committed to their autonomy, to their need for space and distance and their desire to do things and find intensity outside of the relationship, often in their work life. Hmm. Whereas the other person seems to now hover around the relationship. They want more intensity in the connection, Hmm. more closeness, more talking together, more emotional sharing, often more sex. In heterosexual couples, that can kind of crisscross where the man... Um, finds that he wants more distance in his emotional life and wants to be more intense about work, but he wants more closeness sexually. And the woman wants more closeness emotionally and not so interested in the bedroom. So I, I really think what you're talking about in your podcast, this is what drew me to you. I'm like, exactly, exactly. This is their, um, they have captured the problem in a a pithy title that we all struggle with. How do we have autonomy and connection? So, you know, you said a a third of the couples, they've lost that, that combination in the first two years, which I mean that there's a lot of couples that are not even just in their first two years that are listening to us right now that are further along. And it's now, it's now lasted five and 10 years and the resentment that builds with all of that. I mean, what's the starting place to try to reconnect in those ways, but both from a physical and an emotional way? Besides going to see Lori Watson, the best sex yeah, therapist right. I know. Uh, <laughs> or one of our retreats. Um, I think that this struggle strangles the sex life, hmm. right? And that sex is a fragile area. And so that is often the reason sex is impacted first is because couples have not been able to resolve these different needs internally or between them. So the step back is how do we balance this 
so that it doesn't become a toxic separating cycle where one person chases and the other just backs up. And when that person comes forward a little bit, the person who's chasing says, huh, that's it. That's all you got for me. Mm. And the person who distance says, see, no matter what I do, makes you, doesn't make you happy anyway. So why should I try? And couples get into a toxic cycle and sex often dies. Mm. I, I don't think that desire dies. I think that we kill it. And that's Stephen Mitchell talks about this desire. We kill it um, because of this struggle. Hmm. Yeah, you talk a lot in your podcast about the like the pursuer and the avoider. Right. Um, which I honestly never really thought of until your podcast. So can you explain that a little bit? Because I think you're kind of circling that right now. Sure. Yes. Um, so the pursuer is the person who's chasing. And it may be that they're chasing for emotional connection or it may be that they're chasing for sexual connection. It's the person who wants something more from the other. The avoider, or sometimes the distancer, is the person who is not as aware of their need for those things and backs up. They, they actually both need closeness and they both need autonomy, but the distancing partner doesn't feel it as intently. So maybe a woman comes in and says, oh, I don't care if I ever have sex again. Mm-hmm. It's like, Really? You know, and or her partner says, I don't really know what she means when she talks about emotional connection. I mean, that's just foreign concept. I'm I work, I support, I give to the family, I help out with the children. Why is she angry? Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel like they're just so they're just not really in touch with their true like needs is what you're saying? Yeah, I do believe that the power struggle makes couples act like South Pole magnets on a rod right? One person chases and it just bounces the other person back. Mm. And so it's this cycle that um, creates kind of a blindness in themselves about their true needs. Mm. So a woman who maybe doesn't feel driven biologically for sex often does have a need though in her life for erotic, spicy, tantalizing, physical love, right? Right. I mean, as children, we need copious amounts of affection. And sex is the place in adulthood and an adult romance where we get these needs met. We still need it. Hmm. The touch and the sensation of skin on skin. Mm -hmm. And, And a man who may not have been raised to be emotionally intimate, I mean, the benefit is profound. It helps his work relationships. He becomes a better manager of people. It helps him with his children connect to their deep needs to teach love and be with them in ways that changes a generation. Hmm. Now, progress that, you, you know, you're sitting with a couple that um, really wants, you know, both in theory wants those things. And so they pursue each other. Let's say you got past that first phase. They're pursuing each other. And then insects, it just isn't everything it's they're hoping for. So one person's yeah. disappointed. It leads to, you know, um, selfishness. It leads to, um, you know, all the things that go with that. Is that a fair assumption that happens oftentimes? Sure. sure. So sometimes couples can come in and 
they actually do both want the sex life to be better and it's not very good. Mm-hmm. And so how do we help them? I mean, some of sex therapy is explicit negotiation, hmm. helping them learn how to touch the other. Um, it's all description. It is not watching. It is not showing. There's no nudity, no exams, anything like that in sex therapy. It's but it's talking sex. about it, right? But it, it, yeah, it can be educational as well. And teaching them how to overcome particular sexual dysfunctions. Mm. I would say the most common for couples your age are premature ejaculation and anorgasmia, which means the woman hasn't had an orgasm yet, or she doesn't have it with her partner. Mm. Um, You know, and just a little caveat here, most women do not have orgasms through sexual intercourse. Yeah, I definitely wanted you to talk about that. Tell tell us that statistic, those statistics about women and orgasms versus men and that kind of... Right. Only 15% of women can reach orgasm through sexual intercourse. Really? But you're... 15%. But you're saying like penetration. Penetration. About 100% can reach orgasm through clitoral stimulation, but they need quite a bit of it. So they need about 20 minutes of clitoral stimulation to reach orgasm. And that's after about 20 minutes of relaxing into the moment, feeling like their mind has turned on and they've had general arousal, which is stroking, touching, and caressing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes women a long time. And sometimes a young woman will come in and say, you know, it just takes me forever. I'm like, how long does it take you? She's like, oh, it takes me 15 minutes. I'm like, okay, you're, you're like, you're like a rock star. Average. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're normal and actually above average. You're above average. And I think men who most often are educated through porn, Hmm. you know, are really disappointed. And they're like, wow, that, that takes, that's a lot of work. And women, Women count themselves dysfunctional right. if they are not uh, similar to the male pattern, right? Yes, preach it. You know, women got to climb the mountain and men, they take a gondola. You know, they're <laughs> at the top. <laughs> okay, so I, I want to talk about that uh, kind of about in that same realm, like the Uh, I think you even have a podcast about that sexual equality in that sense, right? Because Mm -hmm. so if women are not achieving orgasms, then maybe sex is not as pleasurable or they feel inadequate, not, Mm -hmm. you know, so that again goes into the brain that turns them off probably even more. Right. Yes. So, but men reach orgasm pretty much every time, like you said. So I mean, unless there's problems, but so What do we do about that inequality? So first of all, vibrators help a lot with equality uh, because then she can have an orgasm during that quickie. Uh, You know, it may take her the longie to have the orgasm in a more natural, slow arousal pattern, which for most women is exquisite. That, That slow arousal is hard to beat in terms of her build up both in vasocongestion, which is the the blood flow to her sexual organs and her vulva, and how that really builds a platform for a great orgasm. But also that connection, that emotional And connection. that connection. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I think certainly women need to have regular orgasms to have libido. Although I think where this gets twisted up is when men take it on themselves to say, well, you didn't have an orgasm and I want you to really have one. And she's like, you know, it's not my night. It's a woman who has a regular pattern of orgasms, but just on this particular event, she's, she's not in it. She's like, you know, I want to make love to you. I want you to feel good. And it feels good to me to have you feel good. I like you inside me. This is awesome. It's not my night. Really, gentlemen, that's her call. Okay. You know, unless it becomes a long-standing pattern. But I think sometimes men get their minds bent and they think somehow or another she has to have it every single time. And I'm not a good lover if I don't give it to her every single time. And that becomes a crazy cycle too. Mm-hmm. And so basically it, it, you're just saying in terms of it doesn't necessarily have to be this both of you every single time orgasm for it to be a good sexual encounter is what you're saying. Right. I think equality is over a pattern. And I think we also have to realize that we don't have equal bodies. Hmm. I mean, men have massive amounts of testosterone, Hmm. hundreds of times the amount that women have. And testosterone is the hormone in our bodies in both genders that govern wanting, that govern sexual hunger. So we don't have equal bodies. And so arousal is much slower for a woman. I think that the burden of initiation in a heterosexual couple is going to fall on the male. That's not fair, but it is biology. Mm -hmm. So in the midst of that, there's, you know, there's so many disappointed people listening, right? I know it. And does that make you sad? You know, I think that once people accept these things, they can become so much happier. Hmm. Once they accept that there, there is a true difference. You know, men often say to their wives or their female partners, but I want you to want it like I want it. I'm like, okay, you should have been in a hetero, you know, a homosexual relationship. really. <laughs> right. You know, because, because that's, that's more genuinely reciprocal. Yeah. Interesting. Same biology. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm. and, and certainly we, we, I don't know if your podcast does, but we work with homosexual couples as well, but our podcast generally speaks to the heterosexual dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, let's say someone's listening. This is attention. Obviously it's attention in a lot of relationships trying to uh, in in a lot of ways, find a happy like medium in the midst of this, where both people are pleasured, where both people, um, I don't know, enjoy this part of their relationship. And in the midst of it, if it's not working, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of guilt. People feel bad, and it, equally, it turns into arguments, not actual conversations. Is that a fair way to say? Is, have you experienced that? Like, how do you begin that conversation where it turns into like? a healthy like communication process for couples. Yes, I I do um, see a lot of that. And I think because it's such a sex-saturated culture, Hmm. we first imagine that for everybody else, they're having a whole lot more of this great stuff than we're having. Hmm. We don't realize that the truth is sex takes work. Hmm. Sex 
is a lifetime endeavor that takes a ton of work. Mm. And couples say, no, it should be natural. It should be just like it was when we were first together. Well, first of all, sex as a relationship over time is not natural. It takes a ton of disciplined, intention, intentional, um, thoughtful, talking, learning, and work. You know, I often have young women come in and they describe to me the birthday party that they're planning for their child. There's all these details and favors and events and invitations and decorations. And I think to myself, you know, if you'd put a quarter of that kind of work into your sex life, you would not be sitting here paying my fee. Hmm. You know, if you had purchased books, decorated your bedroom in a peaceful, calm way, thought about purchasing uh, lingerie or, or the night out or the babysitter so that you could have that emotional time that you need together. Mm. I mean, it, it is a lot to develop a sex life. And what happens when we're first together and why it seems so good is, is really a lot about our projection and our fantasy. Ironically, we don't mean as much to each other in the beginning. And so we're more courageous. It's like, well, you know, I'll try this, I'll try that, because if they don't love me afterwards, oh, well. Right, you go, you move on, right? You move on. Yeah. But in a committed relationship or a marriage, suddenly what our partner thinks about us becomes very important. And there's this inverse relationship to sexual courage where we stop talking about our fantasies and what we really want and what we like, or our partner makes a funny face when we suggest something and it's like, okay, never saying that again. Mm -hmm. Boom. Right. You know, and maybe we say something and our partner thinks, okay, that's off limits. And pretty soon we're lopping off the ends of the continuum of what we can do together. And sex becomes almost so vanilla that it's a little boring and Mm. we don't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. There's not enough risk involved. Yeah. So I I would say sex takes a tremendous amount of effort and we have to accept that. Hmm. That's good. So, you know, we've got a lot of questions from our listeners and one of the questions, well, we had to narrow a lot of them down, but one of them was um, kind of about postpartum sex. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that and for any of our listeners who might be struggling through that right now? Postpartum is a developmental time in a family, and it's a sexual season in a coupleship um, that is complicated. So developmentally, mommy has to fall in love with baby. And oftentimes the father really serves structurally as arms around this mother-baby couple. He's functioning to protect to make sure that it happens, that they have that space and closeness. But he's really standing on the outside for probably two years. Mm. And that is really hard when you have been the central figure in your wife's life. And suddenly you're kind of this third man out. It's like, what's, what's going on here? You know, that, that can be painful. But I, I tell my sons, I have three sons, 
you know, that for two years, you're going to be an accessory. It's essential for you to support this in order for your child to have the emotional foundation that causes them to grow up healthy. In about year two and a half, you know, daddy becomes very important and calls the baby into the greater world out of the mother baby love, you know, love coupleship into uh, this world of play and adventure. But I think how many young men know that young fathers are prepared for this sacrifice of not being quite as central. So Mm -hmm. I think that that hurts them. And if they're a sexual pursuer, they're trying to get back centrality sexually. Mm. And now mom, who is, has her body changed, mm-hmm. she might be nursing, she's exhausted with an infant, um, she maybe had a vaginal birth, and so her vulva is changed and torn and healing. You know, this may be the furthest thing from her mind. Yeah. And so it, it's this perfect storm, right, of mm. problems. Um, first of all, I would ask young mothers to ask their gynecologist, please give me vaginal estrogen cream upon delivery. Because one of the things that happens postpartum is there's a hormonal imbalance and she has high prolactin. Mm -hmm. Prolactin is the hormone that has her make milk. Mm -hmm. And whether she breastfeeds or not, her prolactin is high. And one of the problems with it is it makes her vagina dry. So she might be dealing with a vaginal tear, an episiotomy, and then drier skin in her vulva, regardless of the nursing decision or not. And so sex is going to be painful again, and vaginal estrogen actually makes it better. Mm -hmm. So she should do that two weeks before she resumes intercourse. And the tradition is a six-week interval before she can resume intercourse, but that varies uh, in terms of her healing and in yeah. terms of her energy level. And it's, um, testosterone is like taking, you know, a double shot of caffeine. You know, <laughs> men just always have this surplus of energy because of their testosterone. Yeah. Whereas women, especially postpartum, they're exhausted. They don't have that testosterone surge. Their ovulation is suppressed when they're nursing, which means they have very, very low T very, very low hunger for sex. And and then they have all these other problems. So big problem. I would say um, to the men that are listening, try to realize this is a season in your Mm -hmm. life. It's a low sex season. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the women, try to have mercy on the fact that he is actually not going through all these hormonal changes. His hormones are still hungry. He's probably delayed sex for the last trimester in some ways when it became too cumbersome to have sexual intercourse. And he needs to be reassured, at least verbally, like, honey, I know sex is low. I know my desire is off, but I'm going to want you again. I so appreciate what you're giving me, uh, what you're giving us as a family in your protection your provision, your love for us. And I know this is a tough season. And just saying those things Hmm. and appreciating each other's different position is often enough to bridge that, you know, season of low sex. Hmm. 
So you mentioned something about sometimes it hurts. We had a question about that. Like there is okay. uh, somebody that submitted a question specifically about when I have sex with my husband, it hurts. And yeah. it's led to a lot of disagreements to their relationship. Uh, what yeah. advice would you give to that woman in that question? So this is a little known issue, but about 20% of women have struggled at some time or another in their sex life with sexual pain problems. Hmm. Hmm. So, I mean, the first thing is, of course, is she aroused enough? Is she using a lubricant? Is she having sexual intercourse too soon? Maybe she feels this pressure, right? I should be as aroused as he is and I'm not. Well, let's let's go for it, you know, mm. because I'm somehow or another dysfunctional to need all this touching in time. Mm. And so she has sex too early. But very often when a woman reports this, by the time it is a problem to her gynecologist, it's beyond that. Uh, it's beyond the need for lubrication. Coconut oil, by the way, my favorite uh, lubrication. Interesting. Coconut oil is, is a little really tip. A thicker, better lube, and it smells like the beach, right? We all love the beach. Bring you back so, to the vacation sex. Yeah. Uh, and, and she should use it every single time. If mm. she has sexual pain problems, put it on him, put it on her every single time before she is touched at all. Okay. Like her whole vulva should be, you know, have adequate coconut oil. Mm. Got it. Because sometimes sexual pain actually includes the clitoris, the labia, not just the vaginal tissue. It can be all kinds of things. It can be deep inside. She might have, there's so many problems. Probably you don't even want to hear them all, but endometriosis, which is tissue growth around her ovaries or her mm -hmm. uterus, that can cause deep pain. Mm -hmm. Positionally, he may be too long. And trust me, um, men being too big, I get 20 complaints of that compared to the man who's too small. It's a 20 to one complaint. Huh, that's a real Too problem. big is not necessarily good. A benefit. Yeah. Right. Hey, um, so while you're speaking, I'm like sweating a little bit. I'm feeling a little <laughs> uncomfortable. It's this funny, like I'm uh, all like in, I'm in it. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I, and I want to talk about that because, okay. So we all want to talk about this. We want our sex lives to be as good as possible, but yet mm -hmm. we don't want to talk about it. And we don't talk about it with people that can help us. If, if I'm really honest, that's unusual. It's an unusual conversation, not for you, but right. for, for most people, I, I think. Um, right. And so even as you're talking with me, you feel nervous, like, just like, wow, these are really personal things. Yeah. Like these are words we've never used on our podcast before. And I don't know <laughs> that I've ever been recorded <laughs> saying the word vibrator before. Right. Like these are like, I don't know. They're just like, it's like these taboos that exist in our culture, <laughs> but yet only enhance our relationship. So anyway. So what you're what you want to know is, should we talk about it more with friends and people? Yeah. Like, is yeah. this something? What that, is that line that you're supposed to, that can help versus hurt, like that could help our relationship versus hurting our relationship and making something very personal, um, public. Does that, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I grew up with a bunch of girlfriends who were very open. I was very fortunate. I thought that was how everybody grew up. I, my mother was very open about sexuality and told me the facts of life, probably a little too young, but I was inordinately curious. <laughs> <And> so, 
I, I did hear good facts and, and I thought that talking about it was pretty natural. I would say that that is not what I hear from my clients. You know, I've been doing this for almost 30 years and I now know that people do not have that kind of experience with their friends. I would say men talk about sex, but more from a joking perspective. You know, very seldom is a guy going to say, so does your wife reach orgasm? And do you know how to touch her to make it happen? I mean, yeah, you know, right. That's not I, the common question. That's a question that never has happened. I think <laughs> ever. ever. <laughs> and women, I think women talk about it more. I think one big omission is the woman who is the sexual pursuer and about 25% of women want sex more than their male partners. And she never gets a conversation. She's embarrassed. She feels humiliated that um, all her girlfriends are saying, oh my gosh, he's always pawing at me. He wants it all the time. And she's like, you know, lips locked. I'm not going to tell you that I want it all the time and my partner doesn't. And it's a really difficult place for her to get help. But I would so love it if um, couples shared more, hmm. you know, at least maybe same gender to same gender. Um, you know, what? how is it really going? I have participated in a small group experience for over 20 years now, and we have actually talked about sex um, together. It's four couples, and, and we've talked about our sex lives and our marriages and our children and our disappointments and you know, now as we're, um, some of us are aging, it's like really starting to talk about existential issues that we have in life. But it's another place that I've had an open experience with people talking about it. Uh, maybe what we should do is have a, you know, a group study, you know, how, how do you talk <laughs> about these things? We'll, we'll publish some sort of group study. Let's do it. I can only imagine the invitation. It's like, uh, I don't know. Anyway, it's, yeah, it, it, it could Just be helpful. what is this group? Right. About? What is, exactly. <laughs> uh, all the like polygamy stuff starts coming out with that. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, hang on. I do want to follow up on that because I do think our experience was when we first were married, we felt like it was a very personal thing and this was never meant to be talked about. And, but yet yeah, like as it should be just between us right, to this figure is, it out. Right. Mm -hmm. But the truth is our sex life exponentially got better when we learned from other people. Like when we talked to other people that we really trusted, it wasn't like some joking thing. It was literally like people engaging us on it that cared about us and asked us questions and, and said, Hey, by the way, these things get better. And, um, here's some things that we learned. It wasn't like awkward. It was actually like, I don't know, really like, um, encouraging and, um, gave us some tips. It wasn't like, I don't know if we were actually asking for tips, but we received them from people that, you know, that cared about us in our marriage. And then it became less of a like awkward thing to talk about for us. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's wonderful. And I'm glad that you had the courage to talk with friends about it and to mm -hmm. receive, you know, information. I think that, in general, what you said is, in fact, the truth, that it's our sex lives is a closed circle. Hmm. And so the problem with any kind of closed circle is that we can't receive new information that might improve it. 
You know, some families are too enmeshed. They're too closed. And so they don't get the good information that they need to be more functional. Uh, and, and our sex life is just traditionally for all of us, this very private space, mm. not to be talked about. Yeah, I, I would say that that's the number one comment I get on the Foreplay podcast is people writing in and say, we have never heard people talk about it so with such ease and, you know, commonly use all the words and a man and a woman just talking about this. They're so surprised and they say, you know, I am now able to talk to my partner about it. Yeah. So I, I think that to me is a victory, you know, yeah. that we're making a difference in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So um, oftentimes, like men do not have a, sometimes men, usually men don't have a hard time reaching orgasm. Is that a fair assessment to say? That is fair. Okay. Women oftentimes, you know, we talked about it earlier, do. And um, one of the questions we had was really about getting over the mental block. A woman asked this question, like, how do I get over this mental, um, was it like, she said block. Yeah, yeah, mental block to reach orgasm. That was like a direct question that someone asked. Sure. So reaching an orgasm for any of us is losing control, right? We're actually going over the edge of a cliff and we don't necessarily know if there are jagged rocks on the other side or hundreds of pillowy quilts that will catch us. And so it's, it's scary the first time to have an orgasm. I highly recommend for women that they try to have an orgasm by themselves first. Some women are anxious about that. They're anxious about masturbation or they think they've been told it's wrong or it's bad, or they shouldn't touch themselves, or any number of um, sex-negative messages. But really, in order to share your sexuality fully in the partnership, you need to be able to do it by yourself because there isn't as much pressure. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to do it in front of a partner, there's so much pressure of being watched that you may not be able to have your first orgasm. And Mm -hmm. I used to say that I wanted women to use their hands their own hands to bring themselves to orgasm. Now I say, go straight to the vibrator because (laughs) with a vibrator, you know where you're going with it. You know what to expect. Mm. And I I had one patient, she was 40 years old, never had an orgasm. And she used a vibrator and my recommendation for the first time, she said, Lori, two minutes, (laughs) it takes two minutes. And she's like, oh my gosh. You know, this is what it's all about, what I've been missing. Right. So I would say start by yourself, um, use a vibrator, then learn to use your hands, then try to share with your partner how to do it. I I would say that the best way to teach a partner is through being really vulnerable and kind of lying on your back, letting him look at you. Even show him, and this is like the hardest thing in the world, but even show him the touches Hmm. because a man has to see how the vulva changes as she gets aroused. And, you know, hand-eye coordination is really important for a man. And so if you can see it. (laughs) See and do. (laughs) Yes. Uh. If he can see it, it really helps him become a better lover. And so please be brave, girlfriend, and show him 
and talk him through it and let him look while you're showing him. I mean, it's just so much better than him reaching down in the dark and the blankets <laughs> and not knowing where he is. Where's that clitoris? Now you, I remember you did a whole episode on vibrators. Yeah, I vibrators. think there was a stat that you said that was something like sixty percent of American women in America. Is that the? There was a stat you said. Is that what was the yes. exact stat? Yes, and you're right. It's over sixty percent of American women own vibrators. That's very surprising. So it's better than half. Yeah, I mean better than half, right? It's electronically, it makes up for testosterone. <laughs> there we go that's how you get that mutuality Wow! exactly and then you exactly. also i mean you also say i know you, we were just talking about you saying using the vibrator solo but you were you have also talked about how it enhances even sex together where both your you know two partners together can also use the vibrator between them is that true yeah, and I think um, my co-host, Dr. Adam Matthews, uh, really brought home the point in that podcast on the Great American Vibrator that, you know, men sometimes feel anxious about this. Like, mm -hmm. that the use of a vibrator means somehow or another he's inadequate. That yeah. He's not providing enough stimulation. First of all, he needs to remember intercourse is not usually the stimulation she needs to reach orgasm. And this provides more of a sure thing. It kind of builds her sexual confidence that her body works, can work. And it may be the perfect solution for, you know, the couple that has two babies at home and they're not getting much sleep. I mean, this is a great way. And they way. need the quickie. They need the quickie. They yes. do, Andrea. <laughs> and it helps them. It helps them both with stress relief. And so I would say... You know, as long as he's been educated and he knows on the, the longy Saturday morning how to do it, he should not be uptight about her desire to use a vibrator. He should suggest it. Mm. So many women have trouble with initiation. And even if they want to use vibrator, they're waiting for their male partner to say, hey, why don't you pull it out of the drawer? I'm like, why didn't you say that? And she'll say, I just feel embarrassed. I'm mm -hmm. Like, you're embarrassed that you want to have an orgasm? which is incomprehensible to men. They're like, of course. I'm <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know? You're so right. That's funny. Yeah. Oh, uh, so the other thing that we had a lot of questions on, it seemed kind of around this idea of shame, that somehow okay. sex just brings up a lot of shame and that that feels like the difficult part to get past. Um, a lot of questions just kind of circled around that. Could you talk a little bit about that and how to get past shame or with sex in some way? Sure. So, I mean, there's the healthy shame, right? That says, this is private. This is special. This is something that is uniquely ours. And that's why overall we keep it private. But... There's unhealthy shame, which is about somehow or another, my desire, what my body feels is bad. And I think, you know, it starts with childhood messages, um, sometimes different faith traditions um, put out messages that say um, sex is wrong or bad or it's wrong or bad in this context. And then 
I've done, you know, I, I live in the South. You live in Atlanta. So I live in the South and we deal with a lot of fundamentalist Christian couples who have violated what they feel like is their faith tradition of um, abstaining from premarital sex. So then they come into marriage and they kind of punish themselves for having broken that commitment and they clamp down on their sexual feelings and then sex goes kind of dead. Hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh no, right now when it's all a go, yeah. when you're supposed to be enjoying it, you're punishing yourselves with this shamefulness of, but we weren't as good as we should have been, or we were so bad. Right. Um, so we have to work that through often with couples. I, I would also say that in different cultures, um, we work with a great deal of Indian couples from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And they have often not been educated or they've been educated in ways that say, you know, it will be extremely painful. Um, and we have to work through this kind of shame of a knowledge building that it's okay to want to learn these things. It's important to want to learn sexual facts and techniques and we just have an intrinsic shame because it's been so silent. Mm-hmm. Or if we come from families that, never talked about sex. The message is something's wrong with it. Something's wrong with your body. Something's wrong with sex. Even if parents maybe enjoyed a romantic sexual relationship, if they don't share adequately with their children about the facts of life and their romance, the children somehow or another feel embarrassed and shamed. And then I would say the last thing is there's deeper messages, right, of trauma experiences, children who have been sexually molested. Um, you know, that often produces just tremendous fracturing of the sexual self that is shaming because then when they have these feelings again that are aroused and they remind them of these bad memories, mm-hmm. um, it it basically fuses with the shame of the earlier memory. And so they have a great difficulty in separating out the healthy, pleasurable love feelings in their partnership from what was toxic, damaging, you know, and wrong from their childhood sexual abuse experiences. So that takes essentially, you need to see, you know, a, counselor you need to go to therapy like post-traumatic yeah and actually ptsd stuff all of that needs to kind of work through Mm -hmm. probably to then be able to get into the sex part again right yeah i would say so and that was one of the questions someone asked how do you how do they find a good sex therapist what how -hmm. would you direct them to is that something you just search for in a local context is there a place you (laughs) recommend yeah it's it is difficult. I will say Awakenings and Matthews Counseling, we provide Skype sex therapy throughout oh, the world great. at this point. Um, so we have trained clinicians that offer that, and I can vouch for their expertise. Great. So but we'll link through that to our site. Yeah. Yeah, we'll link. Now, locally, um, um, there is an organization. There's uh, several. There's a Christian organization, uh, Christian sex therapy organization, and there's also ASECT, which is a secular organization um, that trains and certifies sex therapists. Um, that doesn't necessarily 
qualify them to do couples sex therapy, but they often know quite a bit. Um, I also really love emotionally focused therapy. It's called EFT therapy. And this is the couples therapy, not the, there's another one that includes tapping and the use of right brain, left brain integration. I'm not talking about that EFT. I'm talking about couples therapy because these therapists are highly trained in the pursuer distance or problem and also how that impacts sex. Hmm. So sex therapy might be, um, a sex therapist might not be specially trained in this couple dynamic and an EFT therapist probably more likely is trained in the pursuer distance or dynamic sexually, but they might not quite have enough uh, maybe to heal premature ejaculation or erectile dysfunction or no orgasm. So you might need a bit of combination. Yeah. Someone listening, maybe us, maybe others feel like, yeah, we have a really healthy sex life right now, but we want to keep it that way. We don't want to lose that excitement and like pursuit of each other. Um, how do we make sure we, we keep that um, as a forefront for our relationship? Because over time, life changes and yeah how would what yeah. would you recommend so this is a really tough recommendation i think but first i would say for young couples they need the 444 solution which is every partner needs 4 hours of autonomy by themselves on the weekend so she needs 4 hours he needs 4 hours and they need 4 hours together so it's really only four hours of babysitting time. And I don't care if they go off and sit at the local fast food restaurant and just drink unlimited Diet Coke, you know. They need four hours together. It doesn't have to be expensive, but they need to stop being parents or stop being workers and be a couple where you're dreaming about your future and you're not just talking about the bills and the average stuff. And that transition of conversation often takes place within four hours. The first hour and a half, couple of hours, you're debriefing your day, your week. But by the end of four hours, you can talk about other things, intellectual interests, uh, love interests, you know, what we want to do on vacation, that kind of thing. So they need four hours alone together. And everybody needs a little bit of alone time. And during this stage of life, when you're caught between love and work, I mean, it's really difficult to find it. So I say, you know, maybe one person sleeps in and the other takes the kids for four hours and then they switch off. It is possible. So I highly recommend four consecutive hours where you are not doing chores, not doing household management, not doing childcare, where you're by yourself doing pleasurable autonomous things and then four hours together. And then I would say two to four times a year, go on a couple's weekend, right? I mean, weekends away are where we often have great sex. <laughs> and when you're just having the daily quickies because you're exhausted, you need to go away and take some time for yourselves and really, truly get that downtime to stay connected as a couple. People believe that giving it all the way to the children, money and time is what is necessary and important. Oftentimes they'll say, oh, but they're only little ones. I'm like, that's true. 
And that one time ends and they grow up and you all are still. And they move out. out. Yeah. So you you need to keep the coupleship strong. So two to four times a year, get away together. I like it. Okay. So we kind of talked a little there. I feel like there's this new, well, this kind of hookup culture that's kind of happening right now, right? Uh Where in some senses it's very like uh, sex positive, like know your body, get what you want, do that kind of thing, right? And then, but yet there's a lot of complications that kind of come out of that. Um, So these are for the singles or people kind of not maybe in a total permanent, uh, you know, relationship right now. What would you say, how would you speak to that and how either sex complicates or is that a positive thing? And you know, having sex before you're in a committed partnership, is that something that is recommended by sex therapists so that you know your body more? Or what would you, how would you speak to that? Well, I have a strong opinion about this. Yes, but, I want to hear it. You know, okay, I mean, I don't get why women are doing it. Because in a hookup, her male partner, the odds of him knowing any female body well enough to give her an orgasm is very low. I actually did find some research on this. And what it shows is that only 10% of women in hookups are having orgasms. Right. So So I'm not sure why she's doing it other than this really deep need to feel desired, which is very exciting to the female. Mm -hmm. You know, to be desired is often high excitement, but when there's no sexual release and satisfaction, then what's the I'm point? not sure why she's going into it over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't quite get that, especially if then there's no relationship that would foster a better sexual experience for her. I don't mm-hmm. get that. I, I certainly get for men, you know, why it, it allows them to have sexual release Mm-hmm. and excite, high excitement with a high variety of partners. I, I understand that to be very exciting to men. Um, it allows them to propose to postpone partnership, maybe through education and through young adulthood so that they're having both sexual needs met and being able to pursue their purpose, right? Their autonomy yeah. where they, you know, get off, so to speak, sexually enough. Um, so- I'm not really sure why it works for women. So then what would you recommend for women? I would recommend if they're going to have a hookup to bring the vibrator with them. (laughs) Guarantee right there. Not going to know how to do that or, or believe that this is a person that respects you enough that you can say, Hey, Hey baby, go down and get busy. I need oral sex for about 15 minutes before I come back. (laughs) Right. Say it. And if, Say yeah, it. and the truth is, know, most guys in that scenario, that's not. That's not even what they're thinking. They're about. they're in it for themselves at the end of the day. Yeah, I I don't know that a man is willing to do that. Maybe after he's climaxed, you know, is he really deeply concerned about her yeah. sexual pleasure? But then if he's not, why is this a great thing? Why are you with him? If he's not going to be as concerned or knowledgeable. And I would say I have grown adult men who come in and they're like, you know, I've been with 30 women and none of them needed clitoral stimulation. (laughs) 
I'm like, okay, oh they gosh. all lied to you. Right. <laughs> yes. Oh no. No, I don't think that experience is necessarily a good teacher. I think that character development, patience, being able to listen and being able to vulnerably attune to somebody else is really what makes a good sexual partner. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I like that. Uh, okay. Quick one, quick other question. Yoni eggs. I hear Yoni they're the eggs. thing. Tell us about, is this a what, what, first of all, what is it? What is it? And, uh, does it increase sensitivity? Okay. So a Yoni egg is kind of like a silver metallic egg shaped thing that women put in their vagina and carry by squeezing their kegel muscles, which is the central muscles that hold back urine in both men and women. Um, when you have to go to the bathroom and you kind of are trying to stop yourself from urinating, it's those muscles that are the kegel muscles. It's also how we repair after childbirth, strengthening those muscles. So this is a way that women walk around with these eggs in them holding on to these eggs in an effort to strengthen their pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. We've actually learned through research that a strong pelvic floor has nothing to do with orgasmic intensity. Okay. Um, so what's the point? Over, right? Overall. I mean, it is I mean it'll probably help you stop peeing on yourself. That's for sure. It would, yes. It would <laughs> stop that after <laughs> childbirth. <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely have some of that, you know? You know, and maybe it could be sexy, right? It could be sexy. You're at a party and your partner knows you're holding these eggs in your vagina and you're acutely aware of your vulva <laughs> and genitals and it's like, woo, you know? So maybe it's really Who sexy. Yeah. But it doesn't really do what it promises to it do? It doesn't increase sensitivity. It doesn't increase. Okay. No. Just it it, 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 it just it just strengthens pelvic. pelvic floor. Yeah. yeah, and that woman who gets distracted when she's making love, I would say to her that one of the big distractors is women kind of are watching themselves and judging themselves, thinking either I don't look good enough or I am not getting aroused fast enough, and so that watchfulness is anxiety and it's a counter pressure against arousal. So actually pulling a Kegel squeeze at that moment kind of sucks her soul right back into her body because mm. it's very hard to squeeze your Kegels and not think about anything and think about something else. Right. Yeah. So that is one technique when you find yourself in that uh, spectering state over your, over the bed yeah. instead of living in your body in the actual lovemaking moment. Yeah. Oh, Lori, I could talk all day, but we I have know. our final question that we are asking everybody. Is it possible to both pursue your work passions, stay in love and raise a healthy family? I think it's absolutely possible. I would say that an acceptance of imperfection is necessary. Mm. You know, we are not going to do all of these things perfectly all at once. It's very hard to have a dual career, have children, have a little bit of alone time and have a fabulous sex life. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's only 24 hours in a day. And so I think we have to lay down our perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you know, we can't go to Johnny's concert because we have to work late. Sometimes we're pushing sex two weeks 
because we're literally exhausted. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes our romance night gets pushed because our children are sick and we're about to catch it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to accept that there are moments here that are not going to go as well as we imagined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I read a book when I was about that stage in life and it was called Sequencing. And it really helped me think about that it's very hard to do all of these things all at once. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, me, I think sex is a top priority for the coupleship to stay connected. Um, so maybe that means, you know, you use all your vacation days as long weekend days instead of the long summer vacation. You know, you take 12 vacation d- long weekends mm. so that you get away or you just have some time to relax. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would say, forgive yourself, you know, forgive yourself for not being perfect at work and always perfect with the children or perfect and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, gotta forgive yourself and move on. And now it's time for the breakdown. That was good. It was all the things. I don't think that we need to repeat any of the things that she just said. <laughs> you mean if you want to break down, you want me to bring down the words again listen, that you were getting uncomfortable. If about? you want to break down, go break down it with your partner or something and talk about it. I'm just. Are you seriously not going to do a <laughs> breakdown? With just you? listen to it a second time. First of all, thank you, listeners, because everything that we brought up today were all around questions that yeah. you have all submitted. Um, either through Instagram or at ourloverwork.com. Uh, and so you guys just did an amazing job. So basically all of this was your questions. I mean, I literally have never heard of Yoni eggs in my life. So I, I did it for you. Please say thank you. And we learned that it actually doesn't help anything. It helps something, just not what they were asking. But listeners thank you for your questions i hope this was everything you wanted it to be and what was your biggest takeaway from the conversation i think that when you get to the reality of like the the true biological mechanics that um men and women are so different with sex and that that's why there's just so much I think difficulty too. Mm -hmm. And that you also get to this part about where she was like 15% of women orgasm with sex. Oh my gosh. Just there's a little bit of a, you can breathe out. Yes. Like exhale and take the load off and relax into this idea that it doesn't have to be one way every time. It doesn't always work out like you want it. And, um, and it just, it, it just helped knowing. I mean, and then she said, even how she went into greater detail about like needing 20 minutes of this and 20 minutes of that. I mean, that's a lot of time that women need. And um, it just, it was good to hear, I think. And I hope other women felt able to take a cleansing breath. Yeah, she gave some stats that are interesting because a lot of the comments that we had leading up to this interview People were concerned. They didn't want to, like, we had some questions about let's not talk about, or can you ask why did men want sex every week? And there was, like, all these, like, opinions related to that. And her information about twice a week was interesting to me, not because, like, that's what I'm asking for necessarily, but, like, she was, for her, that's an indicator of a healthy um, sex life. 
I thought that was kind of interesting. But that's also really hard because as soon as you say a number, then you start feeling bad. Yes. In my brain, I'm like pressure. Um, And she, she was very clear that there's seasons, right? There's seasons of, um, hard seasons after you have a baby. There's like, there's seasons where that's not the case. Um, anyway, but she did say the numbers. She did. And she also talked about that a third of couples within the first two years already experience a sexless marriage. So I think she also recognizes that this is, you know, that you can't just say twice per week that so many people are really having problems with this just in general. Absolutely. Well, man, this is a great episode. There's so much to learn. You got something else to say? You just don't want me to say vagina, vulva, vibrator anymore. Is well, that right? man, we'd All love the to bees. hear. Wait. Oh, come on. We got to keep talking. Her 444. I thought that was really, really good in a sense that she. She's, what a great challenge. It's a big challenge, especially for people with youngins. Um, but I would say that the autonomy part I thought was really interesting, too. And how she talks about even that we all want autonomy, but we also all want connection. We do. And how needing to find that balance and which is the whole lover work tension. So. Yeah. And I also thought the recommendation of saying two to four times having a couple's weekend. I mean, that's true for us. We've really, we, we didn't know that recommendation, but I guess it was like four or five years ago, we started realizing, you know, twice a year, we need to have a weekend for you and I to reconnect together, yeah. separate from everything, separate from the kids. And, and that's hard. Some people might not be in a financial place where they can do that necessarily, but having that pursuit, I think is a really, a really good thing to think about for sure. Yes. So, um, thank you for listening. Thank you for your questions. And, um, Lori Watson is her name and she's amazing and check out her podcast at foreplay radio sex therapy and you can get all the information there about um, her retreats and other counseling possibilities and therapy and everything else um, is going to be through um, that podcast so check it out thank you Lori and thank you for listening This episode was produced by DJ Obdiggy for Soul Graffiti Productions.